Beginning in verse 29, Paul writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, last week I began my discourse to you by pointing out that despite the controversy surrounding this text, that it is meant to be a message of hope to the believer. In fact, the entirety of Romans 8 is meant to be an encouragement to those who are in Christ. From beginning, where Paul instructs us on how the Spirit accomplishes what the law itself never could, to the end where Paul emphatically states that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Romans 8 is without a doubt one of the more encouraging chapters in all of Scripture. And in our text here in verses 29 and 30, 30, uh, which I think is really the, the theological climax of this chapter, Paul is essentially saying that genuine believers can have true hope. We can have true hope. We can have true assurance because the spiritual life that is imparted to us is a sovereign work of God, carried out for his purposes, chief of which is to see his son glorified. As we examine the text a little more closely, I pointed out that there are five key verbs that stand out in this text. They are foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. As we noted last week, all of these key verbs refer to divine actions carried out by God alone. There is nothing prescriptive mentioned in this text. Paul is in no way saying that that you must do X, Y, and Z. Again, that is not to diminish the fact that we have responsibility, but Paul is not making that point here. But rather, he is explaining... uh, the process of salvation from God's perspective, Paul here is giving us a picture of how God operates in bringing his elect to glory. We also pointed out that all of these divine actions are linked together in such a way that we can be certain of their completion. Again, notice uh, in verse 29 that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. And then in verse 30, those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. This is why we refer to these five divine actions as the golden chain. From eternity past to eternity future, God has created an unbreakable chain that guarantees without any shred of doubt that his purposes for all his elect will be fulfilled. Now, last week I did not mention it here, uh, uh, or did not mention it last week, but I think it's important for us here now to bring this up just for the sake of defending the essence of this text. As I just mentioned, I am contending as essentially all others in the Reformed camp who have ever dealt with this text, that based on what I believe is pretty simple exegesis and, 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 
pretty straightforward exegesis. The text forms an unbreakable chain from divine knowledge to glorification. Uh, Said simply, if God foreknew you, then you can be certain of your predestination, of your calling, of your justification and your glorification. Of course, if this is true, which it is, by the way, then it is devastating to the Armenian position because it is so clear in setting forth a Calvinistic view of divine sovereignty and salvation. And more than that, it contradicts the Armenian position that, divine, that the divine call may be resisted and that justification may be surrendered. So, how do Armenians interpret this aspect of the text? Well, I will let John Wesley, who is certainly one of the most prominent and respected Armenian theologians of all time, I would say, I will let him speak for himself. These are his words from his commentary on Romans 8.30. He says, quote, St. Paul does not affirm either here or in any other part of his writings that precisely the same number of men are called, justified, and glorified. He does not deny that a believer may fall away and be cut off between his special calling and his glorification. Neither does he deny that many are called who are never justified. He only affirms that this is the method whereby God leads us step by step toward heaven. End quote. Now, let me qualify what I'm about to say by acknowledging that Wesley is my spiritual superior in in so many ways. Uh, I mean, he's John Wesley, right? Uh, He he served with George Whitfield. We sing his little brother's hymns, right? But like so many in the Armenian camp, he is way off here. He's way off. First, I think it's worth mentioning that Wesley developed a pretty serious hatred for the Reformed doctrine of predestination. In fact, he said it was blasphemous and that it painted a picture of God that was, quote, worse than the devil. Well, when Wesley published this in one of his sermons, it severed the relationship he had with George Whitfield, who you know is a Calvinist. And although that relationship was later restored, I don't think it was ever quite the same. Now, I mention this only to point out that like so many others who object to the Reformed doctrines of grace... Wesley interpreted the text with a very strong anti-reformed worldview and he was therefore predisposed to see it through that lens. You see what I'm saying? Second, and again, admittedly, I am no John Wesley, but I do occasionally recognize when an interpretation is an attempt to explain away the obvious. I sometimes pick up on on eisegesis, and this is almost certainly one of those times. In this case, Wesley makes the same argument that many Armenians make regarding this text and others like it. 
When a text is so clear in setting forth a reformed view of divine sovereignty, as this text is, the classic Arminian response is to depersonalize it. In this case, Wesley is arguing that God ordains the method or the plan, but not the persons. But saints, this is not what the text says. This is not what the text says. And it runs counter to the typical example we see really in all of Scripture. God predestines people. He doesn't predestine plans or methods or anything like that. I would also add that Wesley's interpretation really diminishes the hope and assurance that is intended in this text. It goes from saying that that your salvation is certain because from its foreordination before the foundation of the world uh, to eternal glory, it is in the hands of a sovereign God who is working it for his purposes to glorify his son. It goes from that to saying, you're good so long as you do your part and stick to God's plan. How reassuring is that? Saints, I will leave it at that, but I hope that I have adequately explained and, and that you can see the weakness in this view. Well, moving on, last week we examined the first two links in the golden chain, divine foreknowledge and predestination. The first link, foreknowledge, refers to the divine act by which God in eternity passed sovereignly establishes a saving relationship with his elect. Foreknowledge in this sense is not merely God looking forward and electing those whom he knew would believe of their own free will, as Arminians suggest, but rather it is rooted in the sovereign choice of God. To be foreknown by God is to be a recipient of his loving delight and favor, not on the basis of any or, or any foreseen merit, but because of God's good pleasure. The second link, predestination. It refers to the divine act by which God predetermines the destiny of his elect. In our text, the specific uh, destiny God has in mind is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, salvation itself is not the end purpose of predestination. God has determined not only to save his elect, but also to restore them to the uncorrupted likeness of Christ, to be an unblemished image bearer of himself as it was before that image was marred by, marred by sin during the fall. So, this brings us to our third link, and this is where I want to pick up today. Effectual calling. Notice in verse 30, the text says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. Now, for the sake of clarity, I think it's important to note that Scripture distinguishes between two types of calling. You have the gospel call, which is sometimes referred to as the external or, uh, or general call. And then you have the effectual call which is what Paul is referring to here. The gospel call, which is simply the proclamation of the gospel, 
it's offered universally to all people without exception. And depending on the condition of the ground on which it falls or on, on which it is sown, it may be accepted or rejected. The effectual or sometimes we call it the effective calling. The effective calling, on the other hand, it is the divine act through which God irresistibly summons his elect to respond to the gospel with saving faith. We call it effectual or effective because it enables those who are otherwise incapable to respond to God in a positive way. And it always accomplishes its goal, always. And unlike the gospel call, which again is, is offered universally, the effectual call is reserved for those in whom God breathes new spiritual life. Now, some of you may be asking, you know, how do we know we have two types of calling? And how do we know that we are dealing with the effectual call in this text? Well, the answer is simple. First, it is clear from the context that Paul is not referring uh, to the general call, but rather to a special calling. Uh, going back to Romans eight twenty eight, where Paul points out that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We see here clearly that Paul has a specific group of individuals in mind. He is not saying that all things work for good to all people who receive the gospel call. For as we have already determined, people often reject the gospel and are therefore not recipients of that, that, that most special blessing of divine providence. Secondly, and this goes back to the golden chain and the construction of our text here in verses 29 and 30, we see that the calling here refers only to God's elect because only those whom God foreknew and predestined are called. It is clear that the calling mentioned here is not the general call of the gospel. Further, we know that the call here is effectual because it leads to certain justification and ultimately to glorification. Well, if we acknowledge that there are two distinct calls and that it is the effectual call that is meant here, the next question we should probably answer is why? Why is the gospel call itself not good enough? Why must God work in a person's heart to draw or summon him to saving faith? Well, again, the answer is simple. Man in his own strength, man in his own strength is wholly incapable of responding favorably to the gospel. Scripture makes this clear. Apart from God, man is dead. Man is dead. Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 3, or 1 through 3, Paul writes, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at, the, uh, at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, I want you to notice the inference here. Notice the inference. 
Our condition is not merely one of sickness, is it? It's not merely one of sickness. With sickness, there's still life. With sickness, there is always some hope of recovery. With sickness, measures may be be taken to bring about healing. But with death, life is gone altogether. There is no hope of recovery. There are no measures a dead man can take to bring himself back to life. Right? To be dead spiritually means to be a slave to sin and to the will of the evil one. To be dead spiritually means to be on an inescapable pathway to hell. Paul further explains the natural man's inability in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He writes, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In this text, again, the natural man, it refers to the unregenerate. Not only do they fail to truly accept and understand those things that come from the Spirit, they actually regard these things as foolishness. You know, we see this all the time, don't we? We see this all the time. People mock God. They mock His Word. They mock us for believing it. And not only that, here in Romans 8, back in verses 6 through 8, Paul writes, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are, are in the flesh cannot please God. In other words... For those who are are spiritually dead, for those who are in the flesh, there's more than just an unwillingness to accept the truth of God. There's hostility toward it. Uh, You know, this really reveals the, the heart of the unbeliever. For the natural man, the things of God, they're a source of displeasure. They're a source of, of anger. They're even aggression. Do you see the helplessness here? Do you see it? How can a spiritual cadaver who is wholly incapable of accepting the things of God, who thinks the things of God are foolish and is hostile toward them, how can he ever respond in saving faith to the gospel? The answer is, of course, he cannot. And that is where the effectual call comes in. Uh, we read this verse last week, but it's worth reading again here. In John six forty four, our Lord says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, Jesus did not use the word called here, but, but certainly the idea of effectual calling is inferred. Jesus is affirming man's inability to come to saving faith unless God effectually draws him to it. Paul also affirms the effectual calling in 1 Corinthians beginning in verse 22. He writes, For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. In other words, we preach the gospel. 
a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. As we've already seen the gospel or general call, it is, it's a stumbling block. It's folly to the natural man. But to those who are called, literally to the called ones, that's the idea here, as, distinct, as distinguished from the unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles, it is the power and wisdom of God. You see that? Peter also affirms the effectual call in 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As you can see, Peter, he's using Old Testament imagery here to, to refer to the church. The chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation... These people belong to God, and they are those uh, uh, whom God has effectually called where or how out of, out of darkness into light. Now, we could go on and, and list many other examples, and obviously we could go into more detail, but I think the point has been sufficiently made. God uses his effectual call to summon his elect who otherwise have no capacity for the things of God. They have no capacity to respond to, to the gospel in faith. Or think of it like this. Because the gospel is a spiritual truth, it cannot be rightly received uh, uh, with truth and the intended conviction by those who are not spiritual. But when the gospel is proclaimed to those in whom God breathes new spiritual life, the heart is softened, the, the mind is receptive, and the gospel, it becomes effective, right? And because the effectual call always accomplishes its goal, we can be certain, again, that those who are called will also be justified and ultimately glorified. Well, I hope that makes sense. But before we move on from, from calling, I want to say one more quick thing about the effectual call. God's effectual calling is more than just a calling that leads to salvation. It is more than just a calling that leads to, to salvation. It is a calling that leads to a new life in Christ. So important. Now, for the sake of time, I will only provide a few quick examples, but we read in 1 Corinthians 1.9 that we are called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. We read in 1 Thessalonians 4.7 that we are called to a holy life. And in 1 Peter 2.21, we are called to follow Christ as an example of godly suffering and, and so on, so, so many more. Now, I mentioned this to make what I think is a very important point. If we are going to be consistent, if we are going to say that the effectual call 
ultimately brings us to saving faith and is certain and that it's irresistible, then we also have to say that the calling to fellowship, to holiness, to suffering, etc., all of those things, these things are also certain and irresistible. Do you see that? The new spiritual life that has been breathed into those whom God effectually calls is not going to be satisfied with living according to the old nature, living according to the old man. It's not. The call from darkness into light is a summons to a life that, that separates us morally and, and spiritually from this evil world. Now, having said that, just as the effectual call does not negate the responsibility we have to respond faithfully to the gospel, neither does it negate our responsibility in being proactive when it comes to godly living. This is why Paul urges us in Ephesians 4, verse 1, to walk worthy of the manner, uh, or I'm sorry, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. John Murray puts it like this. He says, quote, the sovereignty and efficacy of the call do not relax human responsibility, but rather ground and confirm that responsibility. The magnitude of grace enhances that responsibility. You see that? Well, this brings us to our next link in the golden chain, justification. Again, notice in verse 30, Paul writes, and, whom, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. When it comes to the Christian faith, you cannot overstate the importance of having a right understanding of justification. You can't. In his commentary on Romans 4, John MacArthur writes, quote, If there is a doctrine that the chief enemy of man and of God desires to undercut and distort, it is the doctrine of salvation. Every false religion of the world, whether whether a heretical branch of Christianity or a highly developed pagan religion, is founded on some form of salvation by works. Without exception, they teach that by one means or another, man can become right with deity. In other words, man can become justified by attaining righteousness in his own power, end quote. Wayne Grudem likewise affirms this in his systematic theology. He says, a true view of justification is the dividing line between the biblical gospel of salvation by faith alone and all false gospels of salvation based on good works. Of course, the doctrine of justification was the primary issue behind the Reformation that we just celebrated. It's interesting, on one hand, Catholics condemn salvation by works and and, and claim to believe in justification by faith in Christ. But on the other hand, they condemn the idea that faith in Christ alone is sufficient to justify sinners, insisting that faith must be accompanied 
by sacraments and good works. So said another way, they affirm the necessity of Christ, but, but not the sufficiency. They believe that through the combination of faith, sacraments and works, Christ's righteousness is gradually infused to the believer, enabling him to perform greater works and so on. Now, it's important to note that the infused righteousness here, it is not an imputed righteousness, which I will explain momentarily, but it is an actual objective attribute uh, imparted by God to believers. Again, that's in the Catholic way of thinking. Now, just a little brief history here. As a Catholic monk, Luther struggled with the doctrine of justification. His Catholic education had taught him that in order to be justified, a person had to measure up to God's standards. And the proof of this he had been taught comes from Romans 1.17, which says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, according to the Roman church, for one to be righteous, he had to model the actual righteousness of God in his life. And here's the thing. Luther realized that he did not measure up. He realized he did not measure up. But he continued to meditate on Romans 1.17. And, you know, he finally had that, that, that eureka moment as he came to understand that the righteousness prescribed in this text did not refer to a divine attribute, but a divine activity in which God clothes sinners with the righteousness of Christ through faith. And man, you you talk about having a weight lifted off your shoulders, right? Imagine coming to that understanding. Uh, and, And really, here's how Luther described his own experience. He writes, quote, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise." Now, it's important to note here that, that, you know, Luther's discovery, I mean, it was not necessarily revolutionary. Uh, Others like Tertullian and Bernard of Clairvaux and, and many others before Luther, they understood this doctrine. They understood the doctrine of imputed righteousness. But in Luther's time, the Catholic Church had so corrupted the doctrine, and, and really had, had used it to oppress the church, that when justification was rightly understood and, and set forth, you know, it was like seeing the sun for the first time after living in darkness all your life. So, with that brief history in mind, what is Justification. Well, as we will see, Scripture teaches that justification is the divine act by which God pardons the sin of believers 
and imputes to them the righteousness of Christ, declaring them righteous in his sight. This idea is actually set forth in the word justified itself. Uh, as one of the common meanings we see in scripture is to declare righteous. But this idea is perhaps most clearly set forth in Romans 4, 5, which Darren read for us earlier. Here Paul writes, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The key word here, other than justified, is counted. Or some translations may say reckoned. I like that, it's reckoned. The word is from the Greek term logizomai, and it simply carries the idea of crediting something to another's account. That's the idea. Pretty simple. Um, And if I may offer a very simple illustration here. Imagine you have a debt that you cannot pay back, but you have a rich older brother. We all wish we had a rich older brother, don't we? You have a rich older brother who has the funds to pay your debt back in full. So he and the, the creditor get together and they agree that he will pay the amount you owe and that the funds will be credited to your account. Thus, in your creditor's eyes, uh, uh, you are now debt free because someone else paid the cost. That's the idea. Well, that is essentially the same thing that happens in justification. Because of, st- uh, of sin, we all stand condemned before a holy and righteous, truly righteous God. There is nothing worthwhile, nothing good, no quality whatsoever that we possess that endures us to him. Nothing. That Christ came to earth and, and lived a perfect sinless life And he possesses the righteousness that that we so desperately need. But instead of just keeping that righteousness for himself, through faith, God imputes imputes that righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, to believers. In other words, God credits our otherwise spiritually bankrupt accounts with the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks on us, He no longer sees the miserable wretches that we truly are, but he sees the unblemished righteousness of our Savior. That's the idea. And our sin, well, you know, God doesn't just sweep it under the rug, does he? His righteousness demands that the debt of our sins be paid so in what is both the best and worst trade-off in all of history, when God imputes the righteousness of Christ to our account, he also imputes our sin to Christ, which he pays for on the cross, right? So what we see is that, that while faith is the means through which we secure justification, The faith has no power apart from God's redemptive grace, working through the atoning work of Christ on the cross. And that is exactly why a right understanding of this doctrine is so important. Apart from the imputed righteousness of Christ given by the grace of God 
There is no hope for the believer. Let me say that again. Apart from the imputed righteousness of Christ given by grace from God, there is no hope for the believer. Uh, whether it is through sacraments or good works or whatever, when we start thinking that the filthy rags that, that we bring to the equation are a needed addition to the righteous and atoning work of Christ, we undermine the sufficiency of that work. And in essence, we trade the righteousness of Christ for something far less. Saints, I don't know about you, but when I stand before God, I don't want him to see my righteousness in any shape or form, even at my best. Even at my best. I want him to see the righteousness of my Savior, right? And for us to trust in Christ fully for salvation, that is an acknowledgement that our righteousness is not good enough for a truly righteous and holy God. Well, we've talked about foreknowledge, predestination, effectual calling, and justification. That brings us to our fifth and final link in the golden chain, glorification. Going back to our text in Romans 8, notice again in verse 30, Paul writes, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You know, we talked about this some last week. The goal of predestination, which is to be conformed to the image of Christ, uh, uh, glorification, it is the divine act by which God perfectly conforms believers to the likeness of Christ, both in body and soul. That's the idea. It is the final stage of redemption, the final perfection of sanctification, when we will be restored to to pre-fall glory and perfectly reflect the glory of our Lord. Now, I began this exposition last week with the proclamation which I reaffirmed and defended today that our text is a message of hope. It's a message of assurance. And as part of that message of hope, God has seen fit to include the promise of future glorification. Now, of course, if you are familiar with the Pauline epistles, you know that glorification is a reoccurring theme in his writings. And this is absolutely one of my favorite verses or, or passages. It's actually two verses. It comes from 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and 17. And here Paul writes, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I want you to put yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment. 
Imagine being persecuted on a regular basis for proclaiming the gospel. Imagine the physical pain of being beaten. Imagine the psychological pain of being in prison sometime in a a tiny stone cell. Imagine the fear you might have every time you open your mouth to uh, to share the gospel, to share the truth, because it could be the last words you ever say. Imagine that. Now read these words again. So we do not lose heart. In other words, although in this situation we may be tempted to retreat, we may be tempted to turn around and and run, we choose instead to persevere, we choose to move forward. Then he says, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Saints, what is it that gave the apostle courage to face the enemy head on? Why did he choose to move forward and endure in difficult circumstances? How is it that he can look at the horrors he suffered and refer to them as light momentary afflictions? It's simple, really. Paul knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that no matter what this temporal world threw at him, it was not to be compared with the glory that awaited him in eternity. And Paul reiterates this idea here in Romans 8, verse 18. Love this verse. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Saints, the certainty of this future promise, it should encourage us, it should motivate us to know that one day we will be rid of these these sin-filled bodies, that we will be perfectly conformed to the image of Christ and share in His glory. This is so remarkable and wonderful that I cannot even wrap my head around it. It almost doesn't seem real, but praise God, it is. To see the Son glorified in the glorification of the saints is the purpose of predestination. It's the purpose of our calling. In 2 Thessalonians 2.14, Paul writes, To this he called you through our gospel. There's that word called again, by the way. So that you may obtain the glory of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Saints, this promise is as ironclad as anything in all of Scripture. God has not called us uh, only to see His plans for us fail. God has not called us to uh, a plan. God has not called us to a method. 
May we never even think that that's a possibility that God's plan will fail. May we never even think that. He has called us to share in that glory which will ultimately glorify his son. Well, we're out of time and I would like to close by sharing one last passage of scripture. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 17. Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have, you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You know, it's interesting. We talk about our eternal glory or glorification in Jesus Christ. But the unbelieving world has a glory of its own, doesn't it? Paul tells us that it glories in its shame. It glories in its shame. With minds set on earthly things. And we've all seen this, haven't we? From, from bragging about sin to you know, gratuitous displays of pride and covetousness. The world finds glory, I guess appropriately, appropriately enough, in worldly things, in earthly things. But here's the sad thing. And believe me, people, I am preaching to myself here. When it comes to glory, it seems that Christians often have more in common with the unbelieving world than they do Paul and and those who set a godly example. You know, I've said this before, and, and if the Lord tarries and and I keep living, it probably won't be the last time. But we are often way too at home in this present world. We are often way too at home here. And the question I have for us is why? Why are we so at home here? Why do we get caught up in the here and now? Why do we seek after those things that the world seeks when the glory of heaven awaits us? Saints, let us remember that we are citizens of an eternal kingdom where one day we will be restored to the sinless likeness of our Lord. Again, it's mind-blowing. And as we see with Paul and, and with many others who joined with him, let that hope, let that assurance be an encouragement. Let it be a motivator. We may live uh, or, you know, for, I don't know, some of us will, if the Lord tarries, you know, some of us will be here another, you know, I don't know, 80 years, 90. But compared to eternity, folks, that is a speck. That is nothing.
So may we live, may we serve. And if God so wills, may we suffer in this world with a view and and, and true hope in that certain future glory that awaits us in heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Again, Father, these are remarkable truths. We are so humbled by them to, to think that one day we will be with you in heaven, to think that we will be rid of these, these, these lowly bodies and that we will be conformed to the, the perfect likeness of Christ, that we will share in that glory and, and that that will ultimately bring glory to your Son. It's, it's an overwhelming thought. But we know that, that your word is true. We know that, that you tell us these things because you want us to have hope. You want us to have assurance. And, and that is my prayer for everyone within the sound of my voice and certainly for, for this church, that we would go forth knowing that, that our salvation is secure in you, not because of anything good in us, but because... We know that you're working all things according to your purpose. And Father, I pray that these truths would edify and that they would glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.